Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast, or welcome for the first time. My name is Craig Hadley and I am one of two pastors here at Paradox Church. And whenever COVID will finally end, we will eventually meet in Redlands, California again. Now our church was founded about five years ago and something that's different about our church than other churches is that our sermons are designed to start discussions and not end them. So we hope that the ideas that I share in a few moments will help you think critically about what you believe. Today we are wrapping up our Easter series titled Resurrection Weekend, and today's sermon is entitled The Resurrection of God. Two weeks ago we talked about the death of God on the cross. Last week we talked about Saturday, and the day that God spent in the grave. Which means that today we are talking about Sunday and the resurrection of God. Let's read together from the Gospel of Matthew, as Matthew tells us about the resurrection in chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. We read, After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, For an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. The angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he has been raised as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you, the angel said. So Mary and Mary left the tomb quickly with fear and with great joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And Mary and Mary came to him took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Now in Matthew's gospel, we read about the death of Jesus. And then just like that, Jesus Christ is back from the dead. The people who loved Jesus sealed his tomb on Friday. They grieved at his grave on Saturday. And then on Sunday, Jesus separated the seal of his sarcophagus and walked among humans again. And while the four Gospels disagree on what exactly happened next to Jesus, all four agree that Jesus rose from the dead. And then he either disappeared or flew away in a dramatic return to heaven. This movement of Christ from earth to heaven came with a promise that Jesus Christ would one day return from on high in all of his splendor and glory and collect the righteous from among the earth. And in the same way that Jesus ascended from earth into heaven, Jesus will now take the righteous away from this planet so that they may live a life devoid of suffering in that heaven. There will be no more death and no more destruction. There will be no more tears and no more tragedies. There will be no more heartache and no more hopelessness. And Christian tradition will tell you and tell me that we can trust in this promise because we have the resurrection of Jesus Christ as proof 
that God truly has the power that is needed to conquer death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the foundation of Christian theology. And as the foundation of our understanding of God, we can find this prioritization of the resurrection in the very dawn of our traditions, history and our traditions theology. The Apostle Paul once wrote to the church in Corinth, quote, If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. In other words, for Paul, church, prayer, and scripture are all exercises in vanity if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not literally occur. And if we take Paul seriously and accept that this event is the basis of our faith, then every person who identifies as Christian must ask themselves the question, what does the resurrection mean to me today? Why does it matter to me whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? Does the resurrection change the way I behave and move in the world? Or would I act the same if this event was disproved tomorrow? Is the resurrection one of those events in the Bible that we try to avoid today? Because in our modern scientific society, actually believing that a dead man popped out of the grave can sometimes feel rather silly and primitive, can it? What does the resurrection mean to me today? This is the question I want you to have in the back of your mind during this podcast. Because I want to tell you about how I used to answer this question. And then how I answer this question today. Because for me, this answer has changed considerably. Now, a few years ago, back before I was a pastor, I remember sitting through a sermon in church. The pastor on that day stood behind the pulpit and he preached confidently about the resurrection. He wanted everyone to know what the resurrection meant for all of us today. After reading from the Gospel of Matthew, the preacher told us a story about a funeral that he and another pastor attended together. Now, this funeral was a new experience for these two pastors because the family of the deceased did not hold this funeral in a church. Not only that, the family did not invite any Christian pastor to speak at this funeral. The funeral did not have a prayer anywhere in its service, and there were not any musical selections that spoke of God. Now, the people who talked at this funeral shared stories about how much they missed their friend, but none of those speakers mentioned heaven. No one talked about seeing their friend again. No one shared any hope about a reunion down the road. Now, the pastor in church told us about this vivid memory of intense cries and anguish as the family watched their loved one being lowered in the ground, and I could tell that this memory rattled him. He told us that he walked away from that funeral with an overwhelmingly heavy heart. And as they were getting back into the car, he opened up to his friend who was at that funeral with him, who was also a pastor. And he said to the other pastor, I so badly want to invite every person to come back to that funeral so that we can tell them about the hope and the good news of Jesus Christ. The pastor, in recalling this story, then went on to tell us about how the resurrection meant that we could have hope in a reunion with our deceased loved ones. 
so that when we attended funerals in this lifetime, we could grieve, yes, but that we did not have to grieve as much as those who did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's important for us to understand what the pastor is saying because this is what most Christians believe about the resurrection of Jesus. This may seem rather silly, but the best way to illustrate the pastor's central thesis of his sermon is with a graph. Now, I want you to imagine this graph in your head, and we'll call this graph the graph of grief. Now, the y-axis is going to represent the grief that is possible for a human being to feel. So the very top of the graph is 100%, at the very bottom is 0%. Now, according to the theology of this sermon in our story, when one believes that this life is all there is and that death is final, then we would assume that that human being experiences death with complete hopelessness. In other words, for the preacher, that human being in hopelessness experiences 100% grief. So for someone who does not believe in the resurrection, the graph is filled to the maximum 100% because of the hopelessness they hold. Now to compare that to how we would graph the grief of someone who believes in the resurrection according to the preacher's theology. Because while this death is tragic, this death is not the final word on this person's life. The believer has a hope in a reunion in heaven because of the resurrection. Therefore, a Christian's grief is couched in a larger hope, and they do not grieve at 100%, but let's just assume they grieve somewhere around 25%. So in this sermon, the pastor attempted to sell the congregation on the resurrection of Jesus, and his main selling point was to compare the grief of those who do not believe in the resurrection with those who did and then to point out the difference between the two. Therefore, if one follows Jesus, then they can save themselves 75% of grief that they may experience in this life. Now, all of this may sound ridiculous to you, to score our grief with numbers and percentages. But I tell you all of this because this is what the majority of Christians I interact with believe about the resurrection. We ask the question, what does the resurrection mean for us today? And for most Christians, the resurrection helps them to avoid the depths of their suffering. And if one truly believes that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then that person will never have to experience the worst that suffering has to offer. This theology is prevalent in Christian media. If you tune your car radio to a Christian radio station, then they will tell you that this radio station is more positive and more uplifting than all the other radio stations. Because for the producers of that radio station, the resurrection should help everyone to avoid negativity and downtroddenness. This is why every Christian movie ends on a triumphant note. Several years ago, I saw a Christian movie where the protagonist is a football coach. His marriage sucks, his kids hate him, he can't pay his bills, his team is losing all the games, and his truck won't start. Now he keeps blowing off invitations to church and Bible studies until the suffering he endures is too much. And then he goes to church. He finds God, he prays, he gets baptized, and then everything falls into place. His kids respect him. His wife finds him to be carnally irresistible. 
He pays all his bills. His football team wins the championship and his truck starts again. The movie fades to black and they crank up the Christian jams as the credits roll. Now, the thesis of this movie is transparent. If you believe in God, then you will avoid suffering. This is what the resurrection means for a large swath of Christianity today. And it's easy to see how Christians arrived at this belief. Most Christians believe there is a heaven and there is a hell. Hell is mired in terrible suffering, while heaven is bursting with abundant blessing. In this belief, most Christians believe that a human being's natural eternal trajectory is toward hell, but the resurrection interrupts that trajectory and provides an escape route for humans to avoid the suffering of hellfire and enter the blessing of heaven. Christians believe that we are all doomed to suffer, and the only way to avoid that eternal suffering is to believe in the resurrection. Therefore, if the resurrection can prevent eternal suffering later, then shouldn't the resurrection be able to stunt our ephemeral suffering now? This theology directly impacts the way that Christians tell the story of Easter and the resurrection today. Many Christians believe that Jesus absorbed the ultimate punishment of the cross on Friday. He then stayed in the grave on Saturday, and then on Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. As we have discussed in the previous two weeks of this sermon series, these days symbolize the human experience. Friday's cross represents suffering. Saturday's grave stands for grieving. And Sunday's empty tomb epitomizes the very best of faith, hope, and love. Now, Christians will tell you that on the cross and in the grave, Jesus experienced the worst suffering and the furthest separation from God that anyone in human history ever endured. He did this, they say, so that you and I don't have to experience that suffering and that grief for ourselves. Instead, we can accept and believe in the resurrection, and we can then avoid all of the pain and all of the suffering of the cross and the grave. So while Jesus experienced the cross and then the grave and then the resurrection, for many Christians, the resurrection offers us a way to circumvent those painful experiences. In other words, Christians tell the resurrection story in a way where the empty tomb moves in front of the cross and the grave. And before a human being suffers and grieves, the resurrection asks the question, do you believe that this event occurred? And if the person hearing that question answers by saying yes, then that belief will help the believer to sidestep the suffering of the cross and the grave like an alternative bonus route on a board game. They can then walk on the straight and narrow path around the worst suffering that the world can offer. However, if one answers, no, I don't believe in the resurrection, then Christians believe that that human being will be penalized and that they will be required to go through the heart of suffering and sorrow found on the cross and in the grave. For most Christians, Sunday offers a way around Friday and Saturday. And when we ask the question, what does the resurrection mean to me today? For most Christians, the answer is, the resurrection helps me to avoid suffering. And I must tell you that for the majority of my own life, I personally believe this. I believed that if someone possessed enough faith, then they too could avoid the depths of suffering in this life. But I must tell you today, 
that I no longer believe this at all. I let go of this belief shortly after I became a pastor and I got a front row seat to see how people experience sorrow when they bury their loved ones at funerals. As a pastor, I've participated in a number of funerals in my career. And when I just started out in this vocation, I believed that Christians would not grieve as much as people who do not have the hope of the resurrection. But after a few funerals, I realized that all of that theology was an unfounded myth. In other words, I was told that if we believed in the resurrection, then God would save us up to 75% of the grief that we might encounter. But then I participated in Christian funerals and found that Christians don't grieve any less than people who do not believe in a resurrection. Rather, they sometimes repress their grief in an effort to appear more faithful. And this repressed grief is very dangerous if it goes without proper expression. Not only that, but I found that the Christians I truly admire are not the ones who were avoiding grief, but instead were the ones who grieved the loudest. The Christians who are my heroes are the ones with the tears in their eyes. They don't repress their sorrow. They don't feel shame for their doubts. And they don't skim the emotional surface at funerals by standing around the edges. Rather, they live fully in the heartache of the moment. The idea that the resurrection can help us avoid suffering requires us to reorder the story of Resurrection Weekend. This is done by Christians moving the resurrection in front of the grave and the cross. But my friends, I'm here to tell you that this reordering sucks all of the heart out of the resurrection. This story only means something when the suffering of Friday leads to the grieving of Saturday and then to the faith, hope, and love of Sunday. Because when we keep this sequence in the proper order, we discover the superficiality of the idea that the resurrection can help us to avoid suffering. For there to be a resurrection, there must be a death. For the resurrection to mean anything, there needs to be space to grieve. Without either of those elements, the resurrection is meaningless. But when we accept suffering and grief as part of the resurrection, then the meaning of this event shifts entirely, doesn't it? Because let's say that you have a bit of a hard time believing that a guy 2,000 years ago rose from the dead. I want you to know that there are days that I struggle to believe the same. And while there are also days that I can tell you that I fully believe in the resurrection of Jesus, there are also days, even as a pastor, when I say, uh, are we sure? Are we sure that Jesus came back from the dead? Because a guy rising from the dead is a pretty big claim. On those days, the days that I live in my doubts, can I tell you what the resurrection means to me? Those are the days that I remind myself that at its core, the resurrection is a disruption of the status quo. And in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our tears, 
in the midst of our hopelessness and in the midst of our moments when we are just about to give up, there is something that comes forward that bursts from the earth that we didn't even consider to be a possibility just an hour ago. And when everything was lost, something new was found. When the darkness shrouded every source of life, someone ignited a lantern. When we gave up, somebody else gave us a solution. This sermon is built around the question, what does the resurrection mean to me today? And every Christian should attempt to answer that question. And while I would have told you for the majority of my life that the resurrection helps me to avoid suffering, I have now found the opposite to be true. The resurrection leads me into the depths of suffering. And in all of that tribulation, dares me to hope. For me, this is the story of Resurrection Weekend. God lives in the suffering with us. God lives in the grief with us. And when everyone gives up hope and says nothing good can come from this, God lives in that moment and then disrupts reality and brings forward an abundance of faith, hope, love, beauty, and joy. Allow me to show you how this practically works. If you are unaware, human beings are suffocating the planet. Just this past summer, we crossed a frightening threshold in our relationship with the Earth. The Washington Post reported that, quote, carbon dioxide levels are the highest they've been in human history and probably are the highest in 3 million years. This is sobering data. And this is devastating to hear. We are in a climate crisis, and this crisis is demanding that we human beings completely overhaul how we live in order to save the planet. Now, we shell out a lot of money to watch superheroes save the earth with solutions of violence. But when it comes to the reality of saving our own earth and how we need to regulate massive corporations in radical ways right now, we become quickly disinterested and apathetic. The realization of this stark reality can cause us to feel deep despair because this planet is suffering and human beings who live on this planet are suffering in turn. Now, the majority of Christians hear the facts like this and experience the suffering of climate change and they immediately go back to their belief that the resurrection can help them avoid suffering. Christians respond to the climate crisis by saying, that's too bad, but this world is not my home. <laughs> Christians will then go on to tell you about how Jesus Christ has promised us a new earth that will last forever. So we don't need to be too worried when we hear about this temporary old earth fading away. To which my question is, what happens when CO2 levels start to make the new earth untenable. Now, when I've asked this question in the past, Christians often give me a blank stare and say, what are you talking about? There won't be any CO2 levels in the new earth because there won't be any suffering. And the whole idea 
that Christians hold about this new earth is that we'll get a new earth that is made of Teflon. And rather than learning how to change our behavior and care for the planet, we'll be able to trash the new earth as much as we want, and it will not be polluted. That is what heaven means for Christians in America today who believe that consumption is a God-given right. If this does not disgust you, then I have not properly illustrated the theology of the new earth. And when I consider what it represents, I must tell you that I am deeply discouraged by the climate crisis. There are days I am filled with anger toward the billionaires who want more. There are days that I am devastated by Christians enabling this destruction. There are days that I feel hopeless. And resurrection doesn't lead me around all of that. Rather, resurrection leads me into that rage and into that grief and sits with me in the heartache. But when I feel like giving up, resurrection dares me to hope that something good may be around the corner. Because if a resurrection miracle occurred in the depths of this impossible situation, what would that miracle truly look like? While some may say that the biggest miracle would be Christ returning from on high and creating a new earth, I think there's a bigger miracle that could occur. Wouldn't the biggest miracle that could occur be that all of humanity changes their behavior in order to protect the planet? I mean, if that happened, wouldn't you look around at humanity and say, I don't believe it? Because that's precisely what a miracle is. In the face of the climate crisis, the resurrection miracle that we need is a universal appreciation for the planet. For me, that would be a much more impressive miracle than Jesus Christ creating a Teflon earth where the supposed righteous people can trash the planet without consequence. My friends, I am discouraged by the indifference of humanity towards the planet's groans. I am grieving by the lack of action we are taking. But in the depths of the dis despair and heartache, I have to tell you that I have hope as my companion that a resurrection moment may be on the horizon. Another example can be found in the way that Christians in America responded to the spread of the novel coronavirus over the past year. To date, the virus has claimed the lives of at least 550,000 Americans, and the virus isn't done yet. Now, we must have a discussion about what the people in power should have done to mitigate this spread because they could have done a lot more. But beyond the power discussion, there is also a very personal discussion because it became apparent rather quickly that all of us could participate in fighting this virus even if we weren't on the front lines of healthcare. All we had to do was practice social distancing and wear a mask whenever we left the home. Now, let's be honest, the mask is an inconvenience, isn't it? It's a minor inconvenience, but it is an inconvenience. And while it's just a minor inconvenience, there were a large number of Christians who responded to mask mandates as though this was the biggest inconvenience that the government could possibly place on them. They shouted liberty and freedom 
and they offered a dubious theology of being anti-mask by telling the world that I don't need to wear a mask because God will protect me. This theology informed us that as long as those Christians weren't the ones who were suffering, then those Christians did not care if others suffered around them. So I have to ask you in this very real story, what is the actual resurrection miracle here? Is the biggest miracle that can occur one where the virus is eradicated? Or would a bigger miracle be one where every Christian in America suddenly longs for the health and well-being of everyone? In the face of this viral crisis, the resurrection miracle that we need is a universal concern for the well-being of others. Allow me to tell you one last story, but let's make this story hypothetical. I want you to imagine a normal family. You know, two dads, two kids. These dads give their very best efforts to their children. Sure, they make mistakes, but they always try their best. And when in the wrong, these parents seek to make amends. These dads love their children unconditionally, and their children love their dads in return. Until one day, one of the children decides that he doesn't love his dad. The youngest child grows up and, as an adult, builds a wall between his fathers and himself. Now, this wall can be built on a number of foundations. It could be that their son started to abuse drugs. Another possibility is that he married a partner who had no interest in being part of this son's family. Or it could be as petty as their son's understanding that he holds a certain power over his parents because of their love for him, and he exploits that power. Whatever the reason, their son is now estranged from these parents and also from the other sibling, his sister. Years go by and the distance increases and the silence becomes more pronounced. No matter what the dads and the sister try, they are met with silence and apathy. There seems to be no hope that this estrangement will one day be resolved. Now in this story, I have to ask you, what would a resurrection miracle actually look like? Because a Christian could rush into the situation and proudly proclaim the quote, good news to this family by saying, you don't have to fear death because we can live forever. But is living forever what this family actually needs? Because that might mean that they are estranged from their son and their brother for eternity. No, for me, there is a much bigger resurrection miracle that this family longs for. The more impressive miracle would be if this long-term estrangement finally came to an end and the son and the family experience a reconciliation. Imagine living with this family through all of the heartache, the tears, and the separation, and then one day reconciliation occurs. Imagine sitting around that dinner table on that day, in that moment, at that table. We'd all believe in the resurrection, wouldn't we? The disruption of the status quo? That reconciliation would be a bigger miracle than simply granting people a power over death. 
And in the face of our emotional crises, the resurrection miracle that we need sometimes is reconciliation. A few years ago in college, my best friend was a man named Tyler. Now, if you've heard me tell stories about Tyler before, you know that he identifies as atheist. And when we first started hanging out, he told me that the reason he left his faith in God was because there was just too much suffering on the planet for any rational person to believe in God. After all, if God is truly powerful and all-loving, then why doesn't God put an end to our suffering now? Back in college, I argued with Tyler about all of this because, remember, I thought of myself as entirely irrational. And I tried to rationally explain why God allowed suffering to continue, which is a bit of a strange position for a Christian to take. We conversed back and forth on this issue throughout all four years of our education. I even remember inviting Tyler to a sermon where the pastor promised to speak about how we could believe in God despite the suffering we see. Tyler planned to attend, but something came up last minute and he couldn't make it. We talked about the sermon afterwards, and Tyler effortlessly picked apart the theology that the pastor presented. Now, looking back on all those hours that we spent talking about suffering in God, the thing that I constantly defended was the idea that the resurrection could help me avoid suffering. In order to defend that belief, I constantly sidestepped or minimized the suffering that human beings experienced so that I could continue to believe the things that I had believed since I was in grade school. I wanted so desperately to maintain the status quo of my beliefs. And that status quo led me to a narrow and restricted definition of the resurrection. I used to believe that the resurrection solved the problem of suffering. But I found that this solution often left me hoping for the smallest miracles I could possibly imagine. I wanted a new earth made of Teflon, rather than a change of heart for humanity. I wanted there to be no disease, rather than see humanity genuinely care for the health and well-being of ourselves and each other. I wanted to live forever, rather than experience the power of reconciliation. But now I see how small those miracles are compared to the miracle of resurrection. I see that the resurrection does not solve the problem of suffering. Rather, when I consider the whole of the Easter story and follow the narrative into the depths of our suffering, into the weight of our grief, in that moment I realize that resurrection was never meant to be a solution. Instead, resurrection is meant to be our companion in suffering. Resurrection suffers with us. Resurrection grieves with us. And in the midst of our dark nights of the soul, resurrection doubts with us, while also paradoxically saying, maybe something beautiful and entirely unexpected is just around the corner. And in a moment, the status quo is disrupted. Justice prevails. Reconciliation unfolds. And compassion abounds. And we stand there with our mouths open as witnesses to this resurrection miracle. And we whisper to each other, I don't believe it. I can't believe what I just saw. There's no way this is really happening. That is the resurrection. And may we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all. 
as we witness the resurrection miracle in our lifetime.